you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. This is a, a series that we're doing through the, uh, the letter of 1 Peter, and it's entitled uh, Hope for Sojourners, which is an interesting title because this is exactly what the Apostle Peter is trying to get across. This, this is a message of hope to a church that is suffering. He's writing to the first century church to encourage them as they suffer intense persecution, as they deal with the realities of being this small religious movement that has lost its cultural standing with their Jewish culture, also faces the pressure of the pagans that are surrounding them in Rome, and also facing all the difficulties of disunity within a church trying to figure things out. And this is the, the encouragement that the Apostle Peter gives. That we have an eternal hope that shapes our present obedience. That we are fundamentally characterized by an eternal hope, especially when we suffer for what is good, especially when we suffer unjustly for the gospel and for righteousness in the world. So we need this message. So read along with me, starting in verse 13 of 1 Peter Chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray before we dive in. Our Father, we ask that you would open up this word for us, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that your spirit would convict us and provide us with Courage to be faithful witnesses in the world, to be faithful ambassadors to Christ. 
And we know that it is by your Spirit and by your grace alone that we are transformed from one degree to another into the image of Christ. So we ask that you would give us this transformation. That you would reveal the idols of our hearts. That you would reveal the false hopes that we cling to. And that you would replace them with the eternal hope that you have promised us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a tough year so far. I don't know that there's ever been so much at one time in my recent memory or maybe my life. A microscopic virus in a few months has shut down our economy, killed thousands of people, and completely disrupted our lives. Eight minutes and 46 seconds of George Floyd being murdered in front of the entire nation has exposed the raw nerve of racism in our nation. And, by the way, in four months, we're going to be electing the leader of our nation, which is crazy that that is number three on the news radar. And it's overwhelming. But this is real life, and I think that this is the acid test for the church on whether we really believe what we say about the gospel, about the hope of Christ, about what it means to be in this world but not of it, what it means to be the light of the world. But the fact that all of these devastating realities, our mortality, the depth of our sin towards one another, the depth of the fallenness of this world all coming together at once shatters any illusion of control, any illusion that we are decent and good people. And it can push us to ask, especially, especially as the church, why even bother doing good at all? Why persevere in doing good? And sometimes their response is slander and accusation and hatred. But the message that the Apostle Peter gives to the first century church is the same message that he would give to the 21st century church. Inspired by the Spirit, what is his call to the church? It is to not be afraid, but instead of fear, to set apart and to honor in your hearts Christ as holy. Honor Christ as holy in your heart. The heart is the seat of your deepest allegiance, your deepest loyalties. It is the focal point of your life. If you think about every room in your home has a focal point. Your dining room, the focal point is the table. Your family room, your living room, the focal point is usually a television. Your own bedroom, the focal point is a bed, and all the furniture is surrounding it. It is pointing towards it. It is built in relation to that peace that is set apart. And that's the idea of setting apart Christ in your heart as holy. 
it is giving him a unique status. He is the highest authority. He has no rival. He is the highest allegiance that you have. And all of the furniture in your life is surrounding that, shaped by that, molded by that reality. Christ is the focal point, which means that our lives ought to be shaped by his example. And the point that Peter tries to make is this, that you will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. If you suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. And he gives us an example of Jesus' own life. This is exactly the story of Christ. And the whole idea is that if Christ is the center of our lives and he suffered for doing what is right, for doing what is good, we too will face that suffering. But that will be our story as well. So how do we honor Christ as Lord? How do we honor him as holy in our life while we suffer in doing good? I think there's three ways that the Apostle Peter gives us. The first is that we suffer with meekness. We suffer with meekness. And second, we suffer with self-sacrifice. And finally, we suffer with hope. Meekness, self-sacrifice, and hope. First, we suffer with meekness. In verses 13 to 17, the Apostle Peter gives us a list of what it means to be Christian witnesses in the world. And all of these ideas, although he doesn't explicitly say it or call it meekness, fall under the category of meekness. And that word, we don't usually use it, but the idea of meekness isn't cowardice. It's not weakness. It is self-control. It is mastering your passions. It is not being controlled by ungodliness. It is not being controlled by your emotions, but it is being controlled by the truth, being controlled by Christ. And Peter elaborates on this. He says, if you, if you respond to evil and you suffer with meekness, this is what it's going to look like. He says, first, it's, it's going to look like being always prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. There's a preparation, a sober-mindedness, a a, a, a sort of understanding of the Word of God that gives you absolute confidence that this is the truth. That we know what God has spoken. And Jesus Christ demonstrated this in his life. All of the opposition that he faced, he responded as a preacher of the Word. He was a preacher. People marveled at the fact that this man spoke with an authority that the scribes didn't have. And what was that authority? It was his absolute conviction in the truth of the Scriptures, that they could not be broken. In one of the scenes in the Gospel of Mark, he's facing off against the Sadducees who deny the resurrection. They deny that there is any existence after the grave. And to defend the resurrection, he points to the tense of a Hebrew verb in the book of Exodus. This carpenter knows the exact verb to prove that doctrine. He was prepared. He understood what the Word of God says, and he believed it. 
That's a fundamental conviction of meekness. Being confident in the Word of God so that when you are called to give an account, you are able to do so with a level head and a kind heart. You think about soldiers. They train for hours so that in the heat of battle, they can make reasoned decisions, they can be calm, and they can be ready. In the middle of a firefight is not the time you want to be developing that. So we must always be prepared. But meekness also comes, secondly, with a spirit of gentleness and respect and a good conscience. Gentleness and respect. And the Apostle Peter writes earlier in chapter 2, he describes Jesus' life by, by, by speaking about how he responded to his own unjust suffering. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All that he suffered, all the false accusations, he did not revile in return. Was it because he was weak? No. He trusted that in the end, his father would take care of it in the end. His father would bring justice. And more than that, at the end, in chapter 17, or in verse 17, Peter says that not only will we suffer, but it is God's will that we suffer for good. People want to know what's God's will. And what's the assumption when we ask about God's will? Please tell me, God, the easiest way from point A to point B. Is it God's will that I marry this person, that I take this job, that I do this thing? If you give me your will, this is the easiest, most comfortable path. But that's not what God's will is. He says, it is, your, it is the will of God that you will endure suffering precisely because you are doing what is right. And you must accept that reality. None of this means we should be complacent, especially in the public arena. But it does mean that we should be counter-cultural. That the cross of Christ, the life of Christ, the meekness of Christ should shape the way that we respond to evil. Listen to what Martin Luther King wrote in an article on suffering and faith. This was published in 1960. And he's writing about criticisms about his nonviolent approach. Criticisms about the way that he is engaging uh, in the fight for civil rights. And he says this, There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block, and others consider it foolishness. But I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And the suffering and agonizing moments through which I've passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. And more than ever before, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. What is King getting at? It's profound. He is saying that the cross shapes the way that he lives his life in the personal and the public sphere, and that because of that, he will be mocked by many in the same way that Christ was. 
that the cross is foolishness to men. And yet he embraces that, and he finds brotherhood with the Apostle Paul, bearing in his body the marks of Christ. And what, what is the result? He finds a fellowship with the suffering of Christ, which, I mean, he is literally quoting the Apostle Paul, who himself said that I will know the power of his resurrection when I share in his suffering. And just to press it further, we're not just called to not harm our enemies. What are we called to do? Love them. Love them. Peter earlier tells the church, honor the brotherhood. You're like, yeah, the brotherhood. And love one another. Yes. And honor the emperor. Crickets. Who's the emperor? The emperor is the emperor Nero, who is literally insane. He's crazy. He is burning Christians at the stake. A horrible, godless man. Peter says, you honor him. and You pray for him. This is the call. And he says, because when you do that, you will be blessed. Because God will put to shame everyone who slanders you. How will he put them to shame? Well, he refers to that earlier in chapter 2 when he says that your good conduct, when you abstain from sinful passions, when you live a godly life before those who are non-Christians, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And he says that your good behavior in Christ will put to silence the ignorance of fools. You will shut them up by the way in which you conduct yourself in honor and respect and meekness. That's the power of the Christian witness. He will use you to bring people to himself. Dr. Anthony Bradley is a, he's a professor at the King's College in New York City, and he, he had a very challenging sermon on grace and race, which was very powerful, and, and this was an interesting thing where, where he was talking about humanizing the other, humanizing people, and not viewing them as projects or a cause or the enemy. And he says, here's an exercise, and he challenged the audience, and he said, I want you to think about who you are most terrified of your daughter or son dating. They're a person of a different color, a different culture, a different political belief, a different economic class, whoever comes to your mind, that is who you must discipline yourself to love. That's your assignment. Not who's easy to love, but precisely at the point in which it is most difficult to love, that is the person, the people group, that you must cultivate a Christ-like love for. And that is the attitude that we take, that we testify to Christ with gentleness, respect, and a heart of love. More than that, we, we don't just suffer with meekness, but we also suffer with self-sacrifice. Peter centers his whole argument on the cross of Christ. He says, think about this. 
Christ died for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. The perfect life of Christ, he gives it up for sinners. He owed us nothing, yet gave up his life to bring us to God, to give us everything. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it, to bring us safely home to God. He was completely selfless with his life. And what does this tell us? That the cross is what is fundamental to how we engage the world, how we engage one another in the church, and how we engage the public sphere. Christ brings us to God, which shows us what? That 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 is our fundamental need. That the world has no category for the foundation and root of racism. You need a doctrine of original sin to to grasp the depth of it. It has no category for true reconciliation because it has no cross to destroy the hostility between people. And all of the evil, in its ultimate sense, comes from our decision to be far from God. And yet, what does God do in the gospel? He brings us back to Him. And as we are reconciled to Him, that enables us, the foundation, to be reconciled to one another. And Peter doesn't just stop there, but in the first verse of chapter 4, he says, I want you to arm yourself with this way of thinking. Take on the example of Christ as battle armor. Strap it onto your body and let it shape your life. He says this, Christ suffered for you as a pattern, as an example for you to follow in his footsteps. We follow a Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what did he, he empties himself and he becomes a slave. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which means that our lives, if we follow Christ, no longer belong to ourselves. They no longer are owned by us, but he has bought us with the price, not of gold and silver, but by the precious blood of his Son. We no longer own our lives. Isn't that what the cross represents? That's the symbol of Christianity. Can you imagine if you met somebody who had tattooed onto their arm an electric chair? Or dangling around their neck an electric chair? Or what if we hung an electric chair right here? You would think that we were crazy. But what is the cross? It is an instrument of execution, of death. That is what represents the heart of the Christian life, death to self. We don't make cost-benefit analyses when it comes to seeking righteousness, because our lives no longer belong to us. We have been bought and paid for. Some of you have experienced the reality of how standing for Christ is going to alienate you depending on who you're talking to. Some of you have had conversations with people who they love that you are fighting and that you are are seeking righteousness for racial equality, but really don't love that you're pro-life. And the conversation stops. And then you have friends who love that you're pro-life, but then you bring up something about 
the dehumanization of African Americans, 60 years after civil rights, and they don't like that. And you're just going to be hit from every side. But what's the call? We embrace it. This world's not our home. And we rejoice in it. Because we set apart Christ in our hearts. Because we self-sacrifice. Because it's no longer about us. But it has to be cultivated in the discipline. Not the emotional outburst of death to self. You can't just summon that up from moment to moment. It is a discipline of cultivating death to self. And the gym that you go to to cultivate that discipline is the local church. This is not a spa to meet your therapeutic needs. This is the training ground on how you arm yourself with this way of thinking, where you are discipled in the school of Christ. You are trained to look like Jesus. Something I tell college students, I tell them, look, when you become a member of Four Oaks, when, you, when you're part of Four Oaks, something will be expected of you. You don't just get to come here as a spiritual drive through to get your nugget of inspiration and then go about your life. Something will be required of you to serve and to love other people. This is what, Paul, what uh, Peter says. He says that, how do we live in this world with one another? He says, have a deep love for one another in chapter 4. Have a, be forgiving. Cover a multitude of sins. Don't hold grudges against people. Love people. Pray for each other. Disciplined. Be disciplined in your prayer. Share your home with people who need a home. Open up your home. This is going to require cutting into family time and to me time and to your money. Yes, it will be inconvenient, and there is no way around it. Because what is this? What is it? This is, I mean, this is really difficult for me. I'm not very good at this. I'm not saying this just to seem relatable to you. I'm dead serious. This is an incredibly difficult thing for me to crucify self and really care about other people. You can ask my, actually don't ask my friends. Just take my word for it. I don't know, you, just, you go to the Christian bookstore and you just see a million books about your personal Zen with Jesus and peace and uh, you know, how, to ma- how to have maintenance on your life and, all, and it's just like, what? Are we supposed to always feel peaceful? I think we're supposed to be bothered by things. I think we're supposed to lament. I think that when we open up our lives to care about other people, we're going to feel loss. We're going to feel the sinfulness of this world. We shouldn't shy away from that. But we also suffer with hope. Not just meekness, not just self-sacrifice. We suffer with hope. Christ's death is not the end of the story. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was, he was raised by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit raised him in victory over all of his enemies, and he is now ascended at the right hand of the Father in a position of ultimate authority as the incarnate Christ. He is the King. And it says that he proclaimed his victory over imprisoned spirits who lived in Noah's day. This is a very confusing passage. 
Martin Luther has a very, but not Martin Luther King, the Protestant reformer, the other Martin Luther. He, he has an interesting insight. It's a brilliant insight in this passage. He writes, I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So Luther reads this and he goes, I have no idea. So I don't know exactly what this means, but there are two possible interpretations. And I'll tell you which one I think is correct. The first is that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, proclaimed the gospel through Noah to people before the flood. And those people, because they rejected that gospel, are now spirits imprisoned, waiting for final judgment. So through the preaching of Noah saying, repent from your sin, jump into the ark, you'll be saved. They rejected it, and now they're waiting final judgment. A second interpretation is that Jesus is proclaiming his victory after his death to fallen angels who are waiting for their final judgment. I think that that is the best answer. It's the one that makes the most sense to me for two reasons. First, when it talks about spirits, spirits almost unanimously in the New Testament refers to angels or supernatural beings, not to humans. So it seems like he's talking about fallen angels. And second, we see other areas in the Bible, such as Jude 6 or 2 Peter 2, talking about fallen angels held in chains of darkness and gloom waiting for their judgment. So there seems to be a place where God is holding fallen angels to eventually judge them. If that's confusing to you, email me at zach.simons at foroakschurch.com. But here's the point. God did not leave Jesus in a state of humiliation and suffering, but through his suffering lifted him up to glory and to victory. And he has proclaimed that victory over all opposing powers, earthly and spiritual. And we too will share in that victory because we are in Christ. And the sign of that is our baptism. He says that your baptism corresponds, is a picture of what happened at the ark. What is Noah's gospel message? God is going to judge, so repent. You can be spared his flood of judgment if you jump into this ark, and through that ark you will be saved, and you will come out into a new world, a new life. And baptism represents how Christ is the ark. He's the ark upon, into which we go in, who preserves us from the waters of God's wrath, and through the other end, we come out into a new creation and a new life. And that's what happens with baptism. Into the water, out to resurrection. That's what it represents. And he says baptism saves us, which is kind of tricky. Is he saying that it's magical? No. We're not saved by the act of baptism. Because he says this works not by the removal of dirt. There's nothing magical about the water. But because of what it represents... It represents a clean conscience before God, an appeal to a good conscience. You know, if, if somebody asks you if you're married, you point to your wedding band. Now, does the wedding band have secret, magical marrying powers? Can you put it on anyone and you are magically married to them? No. But it does represent the vows that you have made. And it's so, tie, uh, so tied to what it represents that you could show somebody your wedding band and go, this married us. And in the same way, baptism is so tied to what it represents that you can say, this baptism is my salvation. In a qualified sense, this baptism 
is what demonstrates that I belong to Christ. It is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And it means that we are adopted into God's families. We have a clean conscience before God because he is, he is in Christ, bore the wrath for our sins and broken our slavery to sin. And now we are privy to all of the blessings that God gives to Christ. What are those blessings? Just as Christ was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. Just as Christ has ascended into the right hand of God, we too have been exalted into heaven, and we can come before with boldness the throne of God. And we too will be raised up above all authorities and powers, that the church will be in glory, and angels will be subjected to us. There's this interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 6.3 when Paul is is criticizing the church for being divided. And he says, why are you guys suing each other? Why are you guys dividing up into factions? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? And it's like, actually, I didn't know that, Paul. What are you talking about? But he's talking about the exaltation of the church. That we will be lifted up above the angels. That our suffering will lead to glory. Listen to what Pastor Wang Yi wrote. He's a He's a pastor who was arrested for leading one of the largest house churches in China. That's what he wrote when he was arrested. Those who hold me will be detained by angels. The person who interrogates me will eventually be interrogated by Christ. With this in mind, the Lord has made me sympathetic and sad to see those who are trying and who are holding me. Ask the Lord to use me and give me patience and wisdom to bring the gospel to them. What an amazing testimony. What does Peter begin his letter with? You have an eternal hope secure for you in heaven. Nobody can touch it. You will be in glory. So let them do what they want. They can't touch your hope. And this pastor even feels sad for the people who are going to come after him because he knows the day of judgment will come for them. Modern secular movements can do a lot of good. There's no doubt about it. But they lack that fundamental hope that for a Christian, righteousness in the world is not a matter of whether it will happen, but when. That the Lord Jesus Christ will bring justice to this world, and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. This is not some Jesus Jew. This is not some over This is, I mean, is this true or not? Is Jesus coming back? Is this not our fundamental hope? And then that should shape the way we look at people and go, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that God sees the sin in this world. And this pastor in China, to the world, they will call it foolishness, what he's saying. But the Bible calls it faith. The Bible calls that faith. And this is the eternal hope that sets us apart from everybody else. That again shapes and molds how we live our lives. So by faith, we honor Christ as holy in our hearts. We honor him in our meekness 
in our self-sacrifice, and in our hope, precisely at the moment of greatest pressure, precisely at the moment when we face suffering for doing what is right. And as the church sets apart Christ in our hearts as holy, maybe people are going to wonder what's happening in this little church on 8th Avenue with the pink windows and one bathroom. I hope they do. And I hope when they come in here, we would all be prepared to tell them about the hope that we have. Let's pray.